We're starting today with a reading from Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descended from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Indeed, the dwelling of God is with people, and God will dwell with them, and they will be God's people. And God, God's self, will be with them as their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, nor will mourning or crying or pain exist anymore, because the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Indeed, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are trustworthy and true. God also said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give freely from the spring of living water. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be that person's God, and that person will be my child. As many of you know, I've been doing a little side project of a backdrop series on the book of Revelation. <laughs> ha, little. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, you know, I have enjoyed it, and I hope that this is true for all of you who've listened to it as well, but it certainly helped my own understanding of the very strange book at the end of our Bibles. I'm also glad that, to quote God from verse 6 of what I just read, it is done. The final episode is set to drop this week. Yay! And the passage that we just read is a little preview of that. The end goal that John envisions for creation of God making all things new and being with us. To start us off today, though, I want to draw our attention to another passage, way back in chapter 6 of Revelation, this time starting in verse 12. Then I looked when the angel opened the sixth seal, and a great earthquake occurred, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the full moon became as red as blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree shaken by a fierce wind drops its unripe figs, and the sky vanished like a rolled up scroll, and every mountain and island was shaken from its place. And the kings of earth, and the important people, and the generals, and the wealthy, and the powerful, and every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and in the mountain rocks. That's our reminder, by the way, that John is not meaning these images literally, because how were all the mountains shaken from their place, but then all the people are hiding in the mountains that wouldn't exist anymore if this were literal? Just a little reminder. Back to Revelation, though. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the presence of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to withstand it. In this vision, a whole mass of people are terrified by the presence of God and ask the rocks to fall on them and hide them from this terrifying God. Who is able to withstand something as horrifying as God's presence? The implied answer, of course, is no one. No one could possibly withstand the presence of God and of the Lamb, Jesus. Here's the very next scene, though, of Revelation from chapter 7. After this I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one was able to count from all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who is able to withstand the presence of God? Everyone. At least everyone who wishes it. More people than could possibly be counted from every tribe and nation and language. They all can stand. And all the people in the first scene can't even comprehend that. It reminds me of another story a bit earlier in the Bible. They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, 
Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Another human, afraid of God's presence. This time, it's the scene right before this in the story that reminds us the man and his wife have been walking in the presence of God every day up until this point. But now, things have changed, and they're afraid and hide, just like the people in Revelation 6 did. Who can stand in the presence of God? Adam and Eve could. They did. But then they were afraid. Now, why, you may be wondering, have we just started a sermon on Deuteronomy by jumping from Revelation to Eden? Well, because it's me we're talking about, and I'm afraid you're stuck with my little quirks. Sorry, not sorry, as the kids are definitely not still saying. But also, because this is a persistent pattern in the stories of Scripture, and one we see in Deuteronomy 5 as well. Deuteronomy 5 retells the story of the people of Israel receiving the Ten Commandments, but we're going to skip that part mostly. I think I'm going to do a few one-off backdrop episodes with this series, and we'll put up a Ten Commandments-focused episode in the next week or so. But today, we're going to focus on what happens right after the Ten Commandments part of chapter 5. These words Yahweh spoke with a loud voice to your whole assembly at the mountain, out of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness. And he added no more. He wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you approached me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Look, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the fire. Today we have seen that God may speak to someone and the person may still live. So now why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of Yahweh our God any longer, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and has remained alive? Go near you yourself and hear all that Yahweh our God will say. Then tell us everything that Yahweh our God tells you and we will listen and do it. The people hear the voice of God coming out of the fire on the mountain. They acknowledge that they are still in fact alive, but then double right back and say, but we can't be in the presence of God any longer. Otherwise, we'll die. They're afraid to be in God's presence. Who can stand? And then my favorite part of this little story, if we stay here in God's presence any longer, we will surely die. So, uh, Moses, why don't you go? And uh, you can tell us what God said. Or otherwise, if you die, well, (laughs) better you than us, I suppose. I get the feeling that the people somewhere deep down know that they could stay in God's presence. Probably but they just aren't sure. So better to have that Moses go do it. Telford work, Meredith's old professor in his commentary on Deuteronomy, which is by far the most bizarre commentary I've ever read, but that's another story. He writes of this little exchange that rather be up on the mountain in the fiery presence of the living God. The people would prefer to forge more manageable gods out of their own fires down below which is, according to the version of this story in Exodus, exactly what the people do. While Moses is up on the mountain, standing in the presence of God on behalf of the people who are afraid, they are busy below forging a golden calf. Far more manageable, a golden calf, especially one that doesn't do pesky things like talking for itself. Christopher Wright, the Old Testament scholar, believes that this is what is at the heart of the commandment to make no images or idols to represent Yahweh that the living God cannot be represented by lifeless stone. 
The Speaking God by Silent Wood. Idolatry, he writes, is trying to escape the words of the God who speaks. And why? Why do the people try to escape the words, the presence of Yahweh? Why did Adam and Eve? Why the multitudes in Revelation? Some, through the years, some Christians, in fact, have answered that they were right, that a holy God can't stand to be in the presence of sinful people. But that perspective is to make the same mistake as the people in these stories. Because in each of these stories, immediately before and or after, people, sinful people, are standing in the presence of God. The virtually unanimous testimony of Scripture is that God's desire is to be with God's people, intimately. That that is, in many ways, the source of life and blessing that God promises. We, of all people who worship a God who became flesh and lived among us, ought to see through the pernicious lie that God cannot be in the presence of sin. It was a lie in the garden, a lie on Sinai, a lie when Jesus arrived, a lie in Revelation, a lie today. And yet in many churches today, the pastors are treated more like, less like Moses here. You, you be the representative that goes into the presence of God and then come back and tell us what God says while we go about, you know, normal life. That is, of course, how all the other gods work with their rituals and ceremonies and formulas and priests and priestesses. It's how all the other gods work with their financial advisors and productivity experts and child-rearing gurus and wellness coaches, all of whom can give us the three simple tricks to the life we always dreamed of, the life that will make it all okay. The ones who go up the mountain and come back to tell us how to do it all just right. But that isn't the story we find in the Bible. It isn't the dream God has for God's people because Yahweh isn't like the other gods. Yahweh is holy, which does not mean can't be in the presence of sin. It means Yahweh is different, different from the other gods. Adam and Eve had no need to hide. The people of Israel had no need to flee down the mountain. The multitudes in Revelation had no need to call for the rocks to fall on them. They had need to repent, not hide. And repent, not because God couldn't stand to be in the presence of their sin, but because repentance is turning away from false gods and coming back into the presence of the God who loves us, even while we are still sinners, unlike those false gods. Knock, and the door will be opened to you, said Jesus. Telford Work writes of this story that we are the ones who set limits on the availability of God as if it would save our lives. But it doesn't save our lives. It keeps us from life. Revelation 21, the passage we started with, reminds us of the end goal, the dream that God has always been guiding creation towards, that God would dwell with people, wiping away tears like a loving father, holding us close like a gentle mother. That is the dream. The life that we are invited to live into now because, Jesus tells us, that the kingdom of God is here. No human king, no priest, no mediator, but instead a kingdom of priests. Because Christ, that is God's self, is all the mediator we need. Yahweh is not like the other gods whose presence is limited by ritual and superstition and fear. Yahweh is holy different from all the other gods, which means their presence is open to all 
who would trust that truth and who are willing to be transformed by the reality of a God who makes all things new. In our time together, as a response, we talked about how we could practice this reality of God's presence in our daily lives. That if it is open to us all day, every day as we are, then we should practice finding life there. And some of the people throughout the history of the church who have best understood this reality have noticed that being in the presence of God is best thought of not as a break from normal life in order to go enter God's presence before we return to the mundane, but rather we practice noticing and experiencing God's presence in the midst of the mundane. And there are any number of ways to do this, most of which take a little intentionality and pre-planning. And so the version of this that we prepared together is to plan for a reminder, a short kind of prayer reminder that we might then return to repeatedly over the course of our weeks. And so the response time had two parts. One, identifying a word or a phrase or a short prayer that would remind us of God's presence. Something as simple as, God, you are with me, or help me notice your presence, or thank you for your presence here. Whatever's going to do the job of reminding us. And then we also identified what cues we would use to help us return to that prayer as we went about our weeks. What things would happen regularly that we could then use as a reminder that we are, in fact, in the presence of God. So some options that we talked through is that you could set a timer on your phone to go off every hour. There are Christian traditions that call this praying the hours where they have set prayers at different hours of the day. Um, A cue could be interacting with difficult people. If that is something that happens with regularity for you, every time that happens, you could use it as a reminder to pray that quick prayer that reminds you of God's presence. It could be a particular stressor that happens regularly, like say hypothetically when you look out the back window and notice the unpruned trees out there that are getting ready to sprout any time now and you really need to get them cut back before they do, you know, hypothetically, just to pull something out at random. Maybe it's each time you pick up your phone, which for most of us is very regularly, but that could be a reminder to pray our prayer of God's presence. Or maybe it's when you are interrupted. Interruptions. This is the one that I actually chose because uh, I live in a household of three people who like to talk a lot. (laughs) And that means my thoughts and my reading and my words often get interrupted over the course of the day. And usually that's a source of annoyance to me. But what if I used it instead as a source of a cue for a reminder of God's presence? The goal here is not to have a reminder of God's presence in a Jesus is watching you so you'd better shape up sort of way. That's not the spirit of this at all, but rather a, I can be present with God even here, even now, which is an important difference in terms of how we're approaching this whole exercise. So I would encourage you to take some time and identify when you most and most consistently could be reminded of God's presence in the midst of your daily life this week, and also to identify a quick prayer that you could use as that reminder of God's presence. So may the God who is present with us help you to feel and experience that as you go about your day and go about your week. Amen.